Welcome to episode 28 of History Stories for My Son, a podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask if you like the podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. Uh, before uh, we get to today's subject, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. One is that I'm taking the podcast into a seasonal model, and what that means is that today's episode will be the last episode of season one, and then going forward, rather than releasing episodes as I complete them, uh, which can be somewhat inconsistent. Sometimes it takes a couple weeks, sometimes it takes a month or more. Instead, what I'm going to do is wait until I've accumulated a decent number, maybe 10 or so, uh, and then I'll come out with a season and release an episode every week during the season. Then that season will end, we'll take another break while I can accumulate episodes. And I just think that'll be a better, more consistent experience uh, for everyone. Uh, I also wanted to announce that I've been working on a book based on a lot of the subject matter we've talked about in this podcast. I've selected uh, some of the stories that I've talked about here and worked to flesh them out, refine them, and put them in a, a book format, sort of a series of history short stories and a book. And uh, I'm going to be releasing that soon. Uh, and so that's another reason why I'm taking a break before starting a new season, just because I want to concentrate on finishing the book, which I uh, I hope many of you will enjoy, since it's the same subject matter that you've been listening to here. Uh, and I'll provide more updates about that uh, once the book is completed and available for sale. Well, thank you all for sticking with me on this podcast. Uh, I appreciate you taking your time. And now without further ado, I give you the story of Wyatt Earp, quintessential frontier lawman. Four gunslingers march down the dusty, saloon-lined streets of Tombstone, Arizona. Doors close and lock. People scurry to get somewhere else. The men's hands lay restlessly on their guns. Three of them are brothers from a family of lawmen, the Earps. The eldest, Virgil, tough-as-nails Civil War veteran, and he's simultaneously the town marshal and the deputy U.S. marshal. He's deputized his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan, and their friend Doc Holliday to help rein in a gang of outlaws known as the Cowboys. Holliday, an alcoholic, womanizing gambler dying of tuberculosis, is an unlikely lawman. Yet he seems the most relaxed of the four, a smirk never far from his lips. The youngest Earp Morgan has never been in a gunfight, but gamely copies his elder's resolution. Wyatt Earp, for his part, tall, broad-shouldered, and mustachioed, 
squints angrily down the street with icy blue gunfighter eyes. His anger is directed at the cowboys who've threatened his life and the life of his family and friends. It was Virgil's call to go confront the men after hearing that they'd gathered near the O.K. Corral, armed in defiance of town ordinance, after their leader, Ike Clanton, had gone around town telling people that when Wyatt, his brothers, and Doc Holliday showed themselves on the street, quote, the ball would open and they would have to fight. The four men have nearly arrived at the vacant lots, not actually in the OK Corral, but down the street between a boarding house and a photography studio where six cowboys have gathered. They're interrupted by the county sheriff, a man named Johnny Behan, who, despite being a fellow lawman, is no friend of the Earps and known to have business dealings with the cowboys. The nervous, balding man says, For God's sake, don't go down there or you will get murdered. I'm going to disarm them, Virgil replies. I have disarmed them, Bien says, contradicting himself. Wyatt squints contemptuously at the sheriff. The Earps and Holiday brush past him. The cowboys have noticed the lawman's approach and turn to face them, standing dismounted next to a couple of horses. The two groups come to within six feet of each other, facing off. Throw up your hands, Virgil commands. I've come to disarm you. Instead of disarming, two of the cowboys draw six shooters and cock them. Hold on, Virgil says. I don't want that. One of the cowboys, Billy Clanton, locks eyes with Wyatt. The two men stare at each other. An eternity passes in that instant. Both men raise their guns and fire. Everything happens at once. Wyatt focuses his fire not on Billy, but on the more dangerous shootist, Frank McClary, catching him in the belly as the man tries to draw a rifle from his horse scabbard. The horses panic. Cowboy Tom McClary moves with his horse as it jumps to the side, using it for cover and firing over the animal's back. Doc Holliday follows Tom around the horse and unloads both barrels of the shotgun into the man's chest before drawing a nickel-plated revolver and firing at the remaining cowboys. Ike Clanton, the blustering leader who swore to give Earps a fight, screams out that he's not armed and clutches at Wyatt, begging for his life. "'Go to fightin' or get away,' Wyatt responds." The man sprints away down the street and doesn't look back. Two other cowboys also run. The Earps and Holiday leave them alone, focused on the two cowboys still shooting. Morgan Earp trips after shooting Billy Clayton in the hand. Then, thinking Billy's out of the fight, picks himself up and fires at Frank, turning away from Billy. This is a mistake. Billy transfers his pistol to his left hand and shoots Earp across the back, striking both shoulder blades and the vertebra. Morgan drops again. Frank McClary, despite his gut wound, keeps fighting. He pulls a revolver and starts moving across the street, holding his horse by the reins for cover, and exchanges fire with Doc Holliday. A round strikes Holliday in his pistol pocket, grazing him. That son of a bitch shot me, and I'm going to kill him, Holliday declares. He follows words with action, shooting McClary in the head. Meanwhile, 
Billy shoots Virgil through the leg as Virgil and Wyatt return fire, blowing holes in his chest and abdomen until he slumps down against the wall, his revolver empty. The most famous gunfight in history, forever known inaccurately as the shootout at the OK Corral, is over. Three cowboys are dead, three have fled, and three of the four lawmen are wounded. The only exception, standing cool and unscathed, is Wyatt Earp. This is his story. It's a story that began March 19, 1848, in Monmouth, Illinois. Like a lot of young American families at the time, the Earps soon packed up to seek their fortune out west. Unfortunately, due to the illness and ultimate death of one of their daughters, they didn't get far, settling in Pella, Iowa, where Wyatt spent most of his childhood. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Wyatt's three older brothers, Newton, James, and Virgil, enlisted in the Union Army. Wyatt, age 13, ran away from home and tried to enlist himself. His father, a man named Nicholas, however, caught up with him and dragged him back home over Wyatt's angry protests. Instead of fighting in the Civil War, the 13-year-old was placed in charge of his two younger brothers and the family farm, while his father recruited and drilled local companies for the war effort. Wyatt tried at least twice more to run away and enlist, but his father caught him each time. In 1864, perhaps in part to get Wyatt as far away from the war as possible, the family moved all the way out to San Bernardino, California. By the time Wyatt reached adulthood, the war was over, and he took a job working at the Union Pacific Railroad. There he learned to gamble and box from the rough-and-tumble railroad workers. In the meantime, his father moved the family back east to Lamar, Missouri in 1868. Wyatt rejoined them in 1869. It was there in Lamar that Wyatt got his first job in law enforcement. Ironically, for a man who would become one of the most legendary lawmen of all times, he more or less stumbled into it. His father, Nicholas, had taken a job as town constable before Wyatt ever got there. Then, when Nicholas resigned as constable in 1869 to take a job as justice of the peace, a kind of judge, Wyatt was appointed constable in his place. He was 21 at the time. Life was looking good for the young policeman. When he wasn't performing his duties, he courted a beautiful young woman by the name of Earla Sutherland, who he married in January of 1870. It wasn't long before the young couple was expecting their first child. Then, the tragic reality of life in the 19th century asserted itself. The expectant mother died of typhoid fever less than a year into the marriage, just weeks before she was expected to give birth, taking the unborn child with her. Wyatt Earp was now a 22-year-old widower. He did not take it well. Going into a downward spiral in 1871, the cost him his job and culminated in his own arrest for alleged horse theft. He did not wait for trial, escaping out the roof of the jail and winding up in Peoria, Illinois. Things did not improve there. In 1872, he was arrested more than once for, quote, keeping and being found in a house of ill fame. Sometime in 1873, 
he left for the Buffalo camps, where he worked into 1874. Little is known about his life at this time, yet we can infer some things from what we know of these camps. Hunting buffalo was big business at the time. Prized for their hides and horns, buffalo fetched a hefty price. Young men could make a small fortune hunting the then-still-plentiful beasts. It would have been a hard life, living in tents, often on the move, surrounded by the roughest sorts of men, very far from civilization. Yet, perhaps, that was exactly what the troubled young man needed at that time in his life. By the time he reappeared on the grid of history in Wichita, Kansas, 1874, he seems to have pulled himself together. He soon found gainful employment as a bouncer for saloons and brothels in the wild, booming cow town which, with its rail terminal, was the end point for many cattle drives from Texas. By the end of the year, he was refreshing his policing skills. He volunteered to help the local police track down thieves until... In early 1875, he was officially hired as a deputy Wichita marshal. He left Wichita for Dodge City in 1876 after a fight with one of his boss's rivals put him on the wrong side of city politics. He was quickly hired by the Dodge City Police, where he worked for the next three years. He also worked a colorful variety of side hustles, ranging from car dealer to land speculator to bouncer. Earp earned a reputation as an excellent policeman, but not particularly as a gunfighter. Rather, his style was more to knock heads together and avoid shooting anyone. He was very good with his fists. Relatively big for the time, at six feet tall and broad-shouldered, he was a powerful man who showed no fear of physical confrontation. Troublemakers quickly learned that crossing Deputy Earp was a quick way to get your self-pistol whipped and dragged off. He only had to shoot one person during his entire time in Dodge City. In 1878, he and another deputy confronted a group of drunks who were riding around town shooting into buildings at random, nearly killing several people. Unable to reach the men with his fists, Earps did shoot, and he shot one of them, who later died of his wounds. This was the first, and up until the shootout at the OK Corral, the only person Earp shot uh, during his time as a Wild West lawman. In late 1877, a gang led by a man by the name of Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, so-called because he rarely bathed and was filthy even by Old West standards, robbed a railroad camp near Dodge City. The gang fled the area, and Wyatt accepted a temporary commission as Deputy U.S. Marshal to hunt the robbers down. He tracked Dirty Dave and his gang 400 miles, passing through Kansas and deep into Texas. It was cold, late autumn, passing into winter, traveling across the windswept plains. Yet Wyatt persisted, day after day, mile after mile, watering hole to watering hole, asking along the way after the fleeing outlaws. Finally, he arrived at Fort Griffin, where Ruttabog and his men were widely said to have passed through. Wyatt made a beeline, so to speak, to the Beehive Saloon, whose owner, John Shancy, he was acquainted with from a previous meeting up north. 
He asked the man if he knew anything about Dirty Dave's gang. The man allowed as how the gang had passed through several days earlier, but didn't know where they were headed. You might want to talk to the dapper fella sitting along the back corner, Shancy suggested. Somehow he held his breath long enough to play a few hands with Dirty Dave. White approached the indicated corner where, indeed, a thin, well-dressed young man was coughing into a handkerchief. The man's face was a bit haggard, despite the neatly trimmed mustache, but intense blue eyes regarded Wyatt as he approached. Wyatt introduced himself and asked to know who he was addressing. "'My name's John Henry,' the man said in a lazy southern drawl, "'but everyone calls me Doc.' on account of my profession. Doc Holliday, at your service. You're a doctor? White asked. A dentist, actually, Holliday replied, though I found gambling to be a more lucrative trade. Won't you sit down and have a drink with me? White shook his head. I'm in a hurry. He explained about Dirty Dave, the robbery and his hunt for the men. Holliday, pouring a generous glass of whiskey for himself, Silently downed it as Earp talked. You won't catch him in Texas, Holiday responded. He knows he's being chased and doubled back. Given his urgency, I'll wager he's halfway back to Kansas by now. Wyatt, by now a seasoned lawman, was a good judge of whether someone was telling him the truth. He stared hard at the dapper gambler, and for some reason he believed him. Damn, he said knowing the gang had several days' lead on him, and if they were moving at all speed, he'd never catch up. Thank you. I owe you one. If you're ever in Dodge City, look me up. With that, Wyatt went directly for the telegraph office and wired his fellow Dodge City lawman, Bat Masterson, to let him know the gang was coming back his way. Masterson put together a posse and set out for the area between Dodge City and the Texas Panhandle, a sparsely populated area. He and the posse staked out the most likely spot, Lovell's Ranch, which was one of the few places in the area for travelers to obtain accommodations. Sure enough, the gang stopped there a couple days later, and the posse arrested them. Although Wyatt was unable to get back in time to participate in the arrest, his work was credited with bringing the outlaws in, and further enhanced his reputation. When Holiday turned up in Dodge City in 1878, along with his favorite prostitute-turned-girlfriend, Big Nose Kate, the two men renewed their acquaintance. Their friendship was cemented one summer evening when an outlaw gang started making trouble at the Long Branch Saloon, breaking things and harassing customers. Hearing the commotion, Wyatt burst through the door to find all the gang's guns pointed at him. He thought he was a dead man, until... A familiar southern voice drawled, I wouldn't do that if I were you. It was Doc Holliday, who by luck had happened to be gambling at the saloon when the gang came in. Holliday and his gang pointed at the gang leader's head. Kindly you and your men disarm, Holliday said. Holliday had a manner about him that, despite his gentle air, clearly communicated threat. The gang disarmed, and Wyatt credited Holiday with saving his life. From that day forward, Wyatt Earp was Doc Holiday's best friend and, some say, only real friend. In 1879, Wyatt received a letter from his older brother Virgil, 
which turned out to be an invitation to his appointment with Destiny. He didn't know that at the time, of course. All he knew was that Virgil extolled the virtues of a silver mining boomtown in Arizona. The town was called Tombstone, and unlike Dodge City, which was starting to lose its frontier wildness, it was a place where men of action could still make a name for themselves. Wyatt, ready for his next adventure, seized the opportunity. He turned in his resignation to the Dodge City Police on September 9, 1879, and set out for Tombstone with his girlfriend Maddie, who he never officially married but was sometimes listed as his common-law wife, meaning they lived together, uh, along with his brother Jim and Jim's wife. He later met up with Virgil in Prescott, Arizona, where Virgil had secured an appointment for himself as Deputy U.S. Marshal for the territory including Tombstone. The three brothers and their wives arrived in Tombstone in December of 1879. Doc Holliday and Big Nose Kate, who had traveled part of the way with the Earps, remained for a time in Prescott, where the gambling was better, and followed the Earps to Tombstone some months later. When the Earps arrived, Tombstone was a rough, uncivilized town that had only been officially founded nine months earlier and still consisted largely of tents, with most of the permanent structures consisting of saloons and the mines. Yet that was changing rapidly. In the two years from 1879, when the Earps arrived, to 1881, the town grew from a population of 100 to 7,000 men. That number actually understates the population growth since the census excludes women and children. The tents disappeared to be replaced with permanent housing, nice shops of all kinds, restaurants, four churches, 14 gambling halls, numerous brothels, and an astounding 110 saloons. This family of lawmen found a largely lawless community where bandits frequently rode into town to shoot up the place, bully and steal from the townsfolk. The most prominent band of outlaws in the area were called the Cowboys. It's worth noting that these, quote, cowboys were not legitimate cattlemen, which were called ranchers or cattle herders. The Cowboys chief line of illicit business was stealing cattle from ranchers in Mexico and reselling it in the United States. But they weren't above extortion and intimidation or other forms of thievery. In Tombstone, Wyatt Earp served off and on in various law enforcement roles, ranging from a brief stint as county sheriff to several short-term deputations with the town marshal. Yet he mostly made his money through various side hustles, ranging from dealing cards to serving as paid guard and protector for various tombstone businesses. He also invested heavily in various saloons and gambling halls. Inevitably, the Earp's involvement in law enforcement brought them into conflict with the most prominent group of outlaws in the area. In July of 1880, the cowboys robbed some mules from a U.S. Army outpost. The unit's commander asked Deputy U.S. Marshal Virgil Earp for help, and Virgil recruited his brothers, Wyatt and Morgan. They tracked the mules down to the McClary Ranch, 
owned by a family that worked with cowboys selling stolen livestock, where they found a branding iron designed to change the initials U.S. for federally owned livestock to D8. Branding was how uh, you identified who owned livestock. Uh, a brand designed to change from one to the other was a clear indication uh, that they were stealing. After a tense conversation, the cowboys promised to return the mules to the government if only the posse would withdraw and avoid bloodshed. The posse agreed that if the cowboys brought the mules to a designated location a couple days later, then all would be forgiven. That meeting came, and the cowboys reneged on their promise. What's worse, they didn't just renege. Uh, they showed up, and they made fun of Earp and the army captain for their gullibility. There was not enough evidence to arrest the bandits, but the U.S. Army commander got his revenge by printing and widely distributing a handbill which called out the men's thievery. Now, the cowboys thought the Earps were behind the handbill and were angry about it because despite the fact they were thieves, they didn't want it to be widely put out that they were. The two McClary brothers told Wyatt they would kill him if he ever interfered with them again. In September of 1880, the Tombstone Town Marshal Fred White was shot and killed by cowboy Curly Bill Brokus. Wyatt Earp, who was a deputy sheriff at the time, arrived at the scene in time to see White attempt to disarm Brokus, who had been making a drunken scene, at which point the gun discharged. It was clear to Earp that the shooting was accidental. Rather than shooting Brokus, he just pistol-whipped him to the ground. An angry crowd started to gather. Fred White had been popular. Voices called out that Brokius should be strung up. Wyatt, despite his bad blood with the cowboys, wouldn't hear it. He told the crowd, coolly but firmly, Brokius would stand trial and drag the man off to jail. Wyatt later testified in favor of Brokius at the man's trial, saying the shooting appeared accidental. As a result, Brokius went free. If Wyatt expected Brokius to be grateful for saving his life from a lynch mob and a murder conviction, he was disappointed. Instead, Brokius remained furious at Earp for pistol-whipping him and dragging him off. In March of 1881, three cowboys attempted to rob a stagecoach near Tombstone. They failed and the coach got away, but not before a passenger and a guard riding shotgun were killed in the shootout. Fun fact here, riding shotgun, the ex common expression for riding in the passenger seat, uh, actually comes from the habits and uh, dangerous times back in the 19th century of the person in that seat wielding a shotgun uh, to defend the coach against attackers. After this incident, Virgil deputized his brothers again, and they gave chase, catching one of the robbers and pursuing the others for 400 miles before having to turn back because their horses could go no further. The one robber they caught, a drifter by the name of Luther King, escaped from jail under suspicious circumstances, apparently just walking out the back. Uh, the Earps suspected cowboy-friendly sheriff 
Johnny Behan or one of his underlings. Wyatt's increasingly clashed with Sheriff Behan, uh, whom he had run against for county sheriff. He had withdrawn after Behan promised to appoint him a deputy sheriff, uh, which the man then reneged after getting the job in February of 1881. Wyatt later wooed away Behan's girlfriend, a glamorous performer named Josephine Marcus, which cemented the hatred between the two men. Wyatt's previous love interest, Maddie, who he'd moved to Tombstone with, had fallen deep into a laudanum addiction until the relationship fell apart. The Cowboys robbed another stagecoach, this time successfully in September of 1882. Although masked, the driver recognized one of them by his voice and referenced to money as, quote, sugar, which was a favored expression of cowboy Frank Stilwell. Thurps arrested him and another cowboy. Once again, there was too little evidence to prosecute, and the men went free. But this didn't prevent the cowboys from resenting the Earps, with cowboy Frank McClary promising to kill them if they arrested any more of his gang. In the following weeks, the cowboys let it be known around town that they were gunning for the Earps. Until that famous day on October 26, 1881, when Virgil decided to disarm the cowboys near the O.K. Corral. You've already heard the tale, which ended with three cowboys dead, the McClary brothers and Billy Clinton. Incredibly, Sheriff Behan announced after the gunfight that he'd have to arrest the Earps. Wyatt stared the man down for two or three seconds before announcing, I won't be arrested today. Behan did not press the issue. The Earps and Holiday were briefly charged with murder, but they were cleared after a preliminary hearing. Despite the dismissed charges, the Cowboys put it out that the Earps had murdered their friends and vowed revenge. They did not take long in getting it. On December 28th, Virgil Earp was walking home one night when he was ambushed with a shotgun blast fired from hiding. The blast nearly destroyed his left arm, and he was never able to use it right again. Cowboy Ike Clanton's hat was found at the scene. With Virgil unable to continue, Wyatt wired the U.S. Marshal and asked to take up his brother's role as Deputy U.S. Marshal. The request was granted. Wyatt tried over the next couple months to handle things through the law, but as usual, nothing would stick to the Cowboys. Everyone knew they had shot Virgil, among many other crimes. But there wasn't enough evidence to prove it. Then on March 18th, 1882, somebody shot Wyatt's younger brother, Morgan Earp, in the back, firing through the window from a dark alley while Morgan was playing billiards. Shot through the spine, Morgan took 40 excruciating minutes to die in front of his brothers. Something broke in Wyatt Earp that day. This man who, less than two years earlier, stood up to a lynch mob, decided he couldn't rely on the justice system. It had become personal. Gathered up a posse, including Doc Holliday, and embarked on a revenge ride, the likes of which even the Wild West rarely saw. 
hearing a rumor that Frank Stillwell and other cowboys planned to kill Virgil at the Tucson train station, where Virgil and his wife were leaving the area, Wyatt and his boys laid in wait. When Frank showed himself, Wyatt made no attempt to arrest him. Instead, he opened up, riddling the man so full with bullets he was barely recognizable. Over the next couple weeks, Wyatt Earp and his posse rode down every known cowboy hideout, camp within writing distance of Tombstone, and systematically gunned down more than a dozen outlaws. In one particularly memorable battle, Wyatt and his posse came across a large group of cowboys led by Curly Bill Brokius, the same man who Wyatt had saved from lynching. They were camped out by a stream in the woods, and the two groups opened fire at each other on sight. The gunfire was so intense that most of Wyatt's posse retreated. Not Wyatt Earp. He waded out in the open, exposing himself to fire, and exchanged shotgun blasts with Curly Bill until the gut-wounded man tumbled dead in the water. Then he drew his pistol and shot two more cowboys. He later found holes in his long coat, and a bullet lodged in his boot heel. However, incredibly, Wyatt Earp was never so much as injured. Wyatt Earp had clearly gone beyond his authority as a deputy U.S. marshal and gone vigilante. He lost his badge and was even indicted for murder, and for a time had to flee a posse led by his old rival, Sheriff Behan. He escaped, however, forever leaving the area, and eventually the matter was dropped. After bidding farewell to Doc Holliday, who had stuck with Wyatt through the entire revenge ride and subsequent escape, despite severely ailing health, Wyatt reunited with Josephine Marcus and married her. The two then lived the Wild West version of Happily Ever After, staying together an incredible 46 years until Wyatt's death in 1929. They made a small fortune traveling from boomtown to boomtown, running saloons and gambling halls and investing in real estate and then moving on to the next one before the boom ran its course. They eventually settled in Southern California in the early 20th century. Although long since needing it for a paycheck, White occasionally still dabbled in law enforcement. As late as 1910, at the age of 62, he accepted a job for the Los Angeles Police Department to perform jobs that were quasi-outside the law, uh, that their officers couldn't do, such as running down fugitives in Mexico. He did the job very capably, presumably mostly for the fun of it. Living in Los Angeles at the dawn of the film industry, Wyatt Earp consulted on several early cowboy films. Uh, one night in 1916, he was having dinner with the novelist Jack London, whom he knew from some time he spent in Alaska during the gold rush, when Charlie Chaplin approached to introduce himself to the two men. They all spoke in what has to have been one of the most interesting conversations of all time, though the details are lost to history. In 1928, while consulting on the set of one of the first talkies, the 79-year-old Earp struck up a conversation with a 21-year-old bit actor and prop boy by the name of Marion Morrison. Most people know that then-young man by the stage name he adopted later, John Wayne. The young man was fascinated by Earp's stories of the Wild West, listening spellbound, 
Wayne later said that he based his legendary persona after the way Earp walked, talked, and lived. Given Wayne's subsequent influence, it's probably fair to say that every cowboy movie you've ever seen has a piece of Wyatt Earp in it. That's not surprising for a man whose life sounds like the plot of a movie, and about which indeed several have been made. Yet Wyatt Earp really lived. The shootout at the OK Corral actually happened. Well, it happened near the OK Corral, but it happened. These were real people who lived these events. Wyatt Earp is representative of that legendary era of the frontier when the line between lawman and outlaw, between justice and vengeance, was thin. He walked that line. In today's world, he would probably wind up in prison. In his world, in his time, he and those like him were necessary. Wyatt Earp embodies the true story of the American West. He was flawed, sometimes even criminal. But he fought for his notion of justice and fought hard. 